Uh, thanks, Nick. I knew Nick before he had a mustache. That was like, it took you a while to grow that. It did. Yeah, it looks great. It looks awesome. Thanks for being here today, Nick. Um, do me a favor. I have to do some things on this. Can y'all stand up and maybe get some energy? Wave to somebody you haven't waved to. Uh, wave over there to, uh, to, to Tim. Say he's, he's a firefighter. Say thank you because it's a big week for him. You're welcome for that. <laughs> okay. Keep talking if you're talking. I mean, you're more, more fun than I am. But uh, today is going to be a little different. We are not going to be able to have scriptures on the screen because I had to build the power the pro presenter, and I have no idea what I'm doing in pro presenter. I learned that yesterday. Uh, so you're going to need a Bible. Unless you have one on your phone, raise your hand. Jen has Bibles for you. Hey, Swithin. Okay, grab one of those. Turn in your Bibles. I want you to hold your fingers in two places. So you're going to need two to three fingers, okay? You're going to be in Ezra chapter 7, and then flip all the way to the back and find the book of Hebrews. We were there last week. It comes right after the book of Philemon or Philemon, however you want to say it. It comes right after that, okay? That's where we'll be today. We're going to start off in Hebrews, and my goal is that it's not as boring as I am. Uh, and that it'll, it'll all make sense at the end of it all, okay? Uh, let's pray. We'll get rolling. Father, thank you that your word still speaks to us today, that your Bible is still active and breathing. Uh, and like Hebrews says, it's sharper than two-edged sword and cuts right through our stuff and gets to the point. Uh, we thank you for that. Lord Spirit, may you uh, uh, be working in this room today. In Jesus' name, amen. It was a big week at the Thayer House. Uh, not anything cataclysmic, uh, but this week... Uh, like many of you, our boys went back to school. Um, th that happened around here. Kids went to school, yep. Some of y'all went back to school because you're teachers. That happens. I apologize for that. Thank you for teaching. Uh, but it was, it was an interesting day because Judah walked into kindergarten for the first time. And by walked, he ran. And, and Caleb, two-year-old Caleb with all the hair, uh, his hair weighs more than his body. He, he walked into preschool. And we saw him walk into preschool, and we're like, hey, dude, do you want mom or dad to come with you? No. And goes right in, puts his bag on the hook, and we're like, oh, well, he just went to college. Wonderful. <laughs> and we stood in the hallway and looked at each other and went, what, what is happening? That was quick. It's normal, right? It's normal, right? Tell me, parents who have been there, this is normal? Okay. It's good, right? It's a good thing that they're doing this. It's a good thing that Caleb didn't walk in there and start screaming his head off. That's good, right? Yes, it's very good. He was brave and confident, and that's good. And this is the mantra that we're telling, us, telling ourselves in our house. This is good. This is good. He potty trained in a week. That was really good. Uh, the other one took years. That was bad. But he's, they're getting, this is normal. They're not babies anymore. They're, they're growing up. This is how it's supposed to be, right? Okay. 
We keep saying that. This growth thing that we have is normal. We progress. We're supposed to progress, unless you're the curious case of Benjamin Button. You're supposed to progress from childhood to adulting, right? You're supposed to progress from playing with Legos one day to having to adult and buy tires the next day, uh, from eating chicken strips and pudding to steak dinner, although chicken strips and pudding sounds wonderful. But you get what I mean, right? You're your palate changes. You're no longer at the kitty table anymore. It's the growth cycle. Healthy things tend to grow. They grow up. They progress. They move along. Everything does. Our kids, our pets, hopefully your job trajectory grows. Our plants, I'm terrible at plants, but plants tend to grow if you have the right person taking care of them. You don't put seeds in the ground and not expect anything to happen, right? They grow, things grow, they sprout. Everything has a growth pattern to it. Growth is an expectation, yet many places that, one, there's one place where we don't necessarily expect to see a lot of growth or we don't talk about it much because it might get uncomfortable and it might change the way we live, is our growth in our faith. We don't necessarily think about growth in that aspect. Our relationship with Jesus should grow. There should be a transformation that takes place. You meet Jesus one way. He loves you the way you are. The old quote, loves you the way you are, refuses to leave you that way, and you change and become more and more like him. There should be a trajectory there. It's one thing to gather. Gathering's good. We talked about that last week. We can gather together, and we can be, we can encourage each other, and we need to do that, but it's another thing to grow. It's another thing we'll get to next week to go. We love to gather. We love to get together and sing and party, have donuts and coffee and whatever. We love that. And we love the going aspect because that we do things and we get to put our hands and feet and making whatever we're doing next week, whether it's at the school or here or wherever, we love that part. But that middle section of growth, that's work. And we don't want to work. And so we avoid it. Yet it's a step that we have to take. In the same ways we gather, in the same ways we're expected to go, we are also expected to grow. So the writer of Hebrews knew a lot about this vital step. Now Hebrews chapter 6, I think, is where I told you to end up. That is a very pivotal passage for a lot of reasons. And it's also caused a lot of sleepless nights for a lot of people. It's not an easy passage uh, to read. It's not. It's one of those that's like, wow, did that really just get said? The answer is yes. Uh, but there's a lot that's leading up to it. Okay, there's actually five chapters. Hebrews 6, if you look at it, you're looking at stepping in right in the middle of an argument. And whenever you come into an argument late, it's always bad news, right? So you need, we need to establish what's going on. Hebrews is written to a group of house churches, probably in Italy. The writer of Hebrews is unknown. There is strong evidence that it might be a woman named Lydia. Okay? A lot of people don't like that. They'll look, I'll get an email. Oh, it has to be Paul. We can't prove that one either, okay? So it might be Lydia. There's just as good evidence that it might be Lydia. So when I say she, I tend to think it was her doesn't change any of the content of Hebrews. In fact, it makes it a little bit more interesting. It was written to these house churches. She had an extensive knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures. She quotes a lot of Old Testament. In the first three chapters, you're seeing Psalms and Numbers and everything that's quoted here. 
there's also a lot of imagery to what's going on in the Gentile world, the non-Jewish folks that they would understand. There's a lot of pagan worship that's alluded to, and that's okay. Some of that stuff is, is all right. That she's, she's building a case. The surrounding culture of the Hebrew church was becoming more and more hostile to Christians that day. Christians were being blamed for things that they shouldn't have been blamed for. Uh, persecution was coming. We talked about that a little bit last week, which made it easier for these new baby Christians, so to speak, to bail. It got really hard to be a Christian. So they're going to return to where they came from, whether that was Judaism or back to idol worship, uh, pagan worship of some sort. And so this is, the, this is where they're writing. So the first chapter of Hebrews go, is this high and lofty. You can go back to it and look at it. It says... It's talking about the, the loftiness and the supremacy of Christ, that Jesus is better than all of the other pagan worship that's going around. And to cover both ends, the writer, she says, and Jesus is the ultimate result of your Judaism. It all points to Jesus. And so the, she's building this case. Then you get to Hebrews 2, uh, chapter, verse, chapter 2, verse 9. And she says this, but we do see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by grace, the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. She's building this case. This is Jesus. He tasted death for everyone so that we might have life. And then if you turn the page and go to chapter three, if you have your Bible, she goes into how Moses was awesome and Moses was great. Moses was a good leader. He led people to the promised land. But then she says, Jesus is better than Moses. So you have the Jewish side. Jesus, Moses, good. Jesus, better. Je Moses, plain donut. Jesus, donut with chocolate on top, right? Better. And so the desert, Moses led his people through the desert uh, into the promised land. Jesus leads the people from the desert of sin into the promised land of a relationship with him. Now, here's one thing that happened. When Moses was leading the people into the promised land, they crossed the Jordan. Moses is dead now. All nine tribes moved in to the promised land. Do you see a problem with this? Nine tribes, not 12. Three tribes decided that they were going to stay on the far side of the river, on the east side of the river, because it was better for their cattle. So they, in Numbers refers to this, did not enter God's promise. They stayed on the peripheral. She picks up on this. She says, Moses led the people into the promised land, into God's rest. Yet in, four, in chapter 4, verse 3, there was some who did not enter God's rest. So now let's put it together. Jesus, high and lofty. Jesus is the best high priest you can ever have. Jesus made a way for us. Jesus is better than Moses. Moses took people to the promised land. Yet there were some people that did not fully enter the promised land. Now she's going to say, Jesus takes people to the promise of life after death. Yet there's still some people who don't enter into the promise of Jesus. Are we tracking? This is the progression. Jesus is better than anything else. And there's a progression happening. Progress in your faith in Jesus will lead you into his rest. Then we get to chapter 5, and there's a little bit of a tone change. Uh, it goes from... You guys remember this cool story, the ABCs, one, two, threes. You remember all this? This is the basics. Now we're going to change the tone here, and I'm going to give you a warning. It goes from reminder to warning. Part of entering God's rest is progressing in your faith, and there are some of you who aren't, is the point she's getting at. 
They could go on talking about how great the reality of Jesus is. In fact, it says that. We could go on and keep saying this at the end of chapter 5, but there's some other stuff in, in, that we have to say. Since Jesus is so great, stop, stop it, she's saying, with this return to Judaism. Because some people would say, I want one foot in Jesus and one foot in Judaism, and I'm going to have it both ways. She goes, knock that off. You can't do that. You're, you're, not, you're not entering God's rest. You're settling. You're not doing it right. You have to go all the way in. Your faith, their faith, hadn't progressed beyond having Jesus as just an accessory item to everything else you believe in. So it was, I believe in the 613 laws of Judaism and Jesus. I believe in Artemis and all the Greek gods and Jesus. And she's going, no, 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 no. All the way in. Don't just wade in halfway in the shallow end because it's too cold. Jump in. The water's fine. You need to be all the way in. And Hebrews 5.11, we'll, we'll read it. She goes, we have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try and understand. In fact, this is verse 12, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you still need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. That's pretty rough, right? Contrast this to the first five, four chapters, four and a half chapters. Hey, we love this. Jesus, Moses, all right. Bible stories, flannel graphs. We love it. This is awesome. Now, you don't get it. In fact, the words are pretty rough there. The word for, uh, that's used for no longer try is the word northos, which means you're being lazy, you're sluggish, or my favorite translation, you dimwit. It's like, you, you guys are idiots. You're dimwitted here. You're not even trying to try. You're not even trying to understand what's going on. But she leads to more. To round it out, she's saying this, it, all you have been engaged with in your faith for long enough that you should be teaching other people your faith. You've been walking in this long enough. You should be teachers yourself. Are you so dull that you're still relying on the elementary things of milk and you're not even eating the solid foods? You're still on training wheels and you should be ripping down the trails on a mountain bike. You're still on diapers and you should be doing those things on your own. I wrote that because we just potty trained and it was awesome. There's a progression here that they're missing. You should be this far, yet you're this far. My dad used to drop us off at construction sites me off and he would he would tell me everything to do and he would give me like three days stuff to do and he'll say all right see you later when i get back it should all be done i'm like you want me to rip down that wall reframe it put the electrical in, wait for the inspection and then drywall it today and he goes yeah you can do it and then he'll come back because he had to go to breakfast somewhere and he comes back and goes why isn't it done yet because <laughs> like, i'm still tearing down a wall this is what he's saying this is what she's saying you should be further along than this. Why, why aren't you here? Are you a dimwit? Are you so dull? Are you just lazy? The, the expanse of that word fits it all. You're not progressing, and you should be. Verse 13, anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not equated with the teachings about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature who, by constant use, have trained themselves 
to distinguish good and evil. There's a warning uh, in this that these milk drinkers, these dimwits, these dull ones are in a perilous situation because they aren't even desiring to move to the deeper matters of faith by which one understands the importance and the means of what Jesus is so that when the persecution comes, they will stand strong. You get what she's getting at. You have to be deeper in your faith. The foundation has to be set in your faith. So when the storms of life blow against you, you have something to hold on to. If you're still stuck to the elementary things, you're going to float away and be taken by the wind. Are we tracking with where she's going? They're basic. And they're so basic that they don't even see how basic they might be. The author is talking about their faith not progressing past the basic elements. The whole goal in this writing was that they were, would repent of this immaturity they have and grasp onto the deeper matters of faith and ultimately endure the face of persecution. Because there's the only way to endure the storms that come is to have your roots in Christ. It'll say that later in Hebrews 6. Anchored in Christ Jesus, who is our only hope. But there's more. There's more coming. There's a context of growth, growth, a projection, a, a progression, deeply rooted, anchored in Christ. The words seem harsh. However, uh, she's confronting things that's going on in this church, that, and this only happens in that church. It doesn't happen in this, right? We've all moved on from elementary things. This is just, uh, they're poor Hebrews. The desire is for every believer to develop into a form, uh, develop from a state of immaturity to maturity, to be grounded in the faithful teachings of God's word. Okay, there's the back, the background. Now, let's get to chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, uh, if you've been with us for any time, what do we find out when there's a therefore? Find out why it's therefore. Okay, this is the culmination. Therefore, Patrick, you've been paying attention. You get a donut. Okay. Find out why it's therefore. Therefore, because of everything that I just said in the first five chapters of my letter, therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. In this case, the admonition to grow and mature in faith. And it continues, not laying the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, Instructions about cleansing rites, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, the eternal judgment, eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. So if you look there, there's six things that are mentioned, right? The tenets that are listed. Each one of them finds parallels in the Jewish faith. Each one of them has practices that can stretch also to the pagan religion. So these six things aren't new to them, but it's it possibly... They, they do suggest some things, they, that they were trying to stay, like I said earlier, one foot in, one foot out, so they'd find the common things between the two religions that they were, they were in, so they wouldn't fully commit to one, and they've been trying to survive with the minimal amount of Christianity possible to avoid alienating themselves from their friends and their family. They don't want to be a full fanatic because people might think of them weird. So let's just play along with this Play along with this, and we'll be fine. Let's not overcommit. By all means, let's not do that. Without going into all six of these things, uh, because at some point we need to go home, this was the foundation of their life. 
This was the foundation of their beliefs. These were the foundations of the Christian faith, and they still are. Repentance, coming to Jesus. Baptism, it's a tenet of our faith. Your baptism, your old life has been washed away. You've been raised again. There's laying on of hands, which is a community. Uh, it is also filling with the Holy Spirit. There's a hope in the resurrection of the dead, which I hope in. That, that when we die, it's not the end, that there is a resurrection. It's taught in the scriptures. There's a, this eternal judgment that's also talked about. This is the basic confidence that we have hope in as Christians. These are the basics of faith. These are, as Jackson 5 said it, the ABCs, the one, two, threes, right? This is it. Yet this is all that they've learned, and they haven't learned anything beyond this. And the writer of Hebrews wants a chance to go deeper, wants them to be more developed, wants them to have wider ranging truth, wants to talk about more things than just this. There's a whole Old Testament to talk about. Yet they're stuck here. Not only does she want to go deeper, but so does God. Okay, you're stuck. I want to go this far, but I can't get you past this. But there's more, and this is where it gets tricky in the passage. Verse 4. It is impossible, and that is a very scary word, impossible, because it means this. It's impossible. It's impossible, not a chance. For those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. That's a tough one. This is about three weeks of college in this verse. It's a tough one. It is impossible, and the hard part is verse 6. They're very concerning here. It's a strong warning that fits exactly what is being said. Look, you've learned the basics thoroughly. ABCs 1, 2, 3, you're, cheer you're cheerfully on the Christian rock. You're heading this direction. And she's saying you can't expect to renounce your faith and go in the opposite direction and be fully restored. Do you see the warning that's here? It's gone from nice Jesus-y talk to, oh, wow, we're in the middle of it. It's a sobering verse, and it should be. It's one thing for a stranger to to the faith to resist Christ. But it's another thing for those who have been in the church and have been enlightened, who have seen the heavenly gifts come, become a partaker of the Holy Spirit, tasted of the good word of God, seen the powers of God happen, and then walk away. It's another thing entirely for that person to say, you know what? I think the world offers a better thing than Jesus. For the writer, that's like learning to speak, it's learning to read, it's learning to write, and then all of a sudden refusing to do so, and then communicating in grunts and hand signals when you have your full vocabulary at your hands. This is what she's getting at. Now, there's something interesting that happens in verse 6. Before we jump here and say, Brad's saying we can lose your salvation. No, I'm not. And I don't think the text says that either. Some will read this passage and jump straight to it, and they'll point to that verse. But that's not what's being said. Uh, it, it's, it's so much that I don't even think the writer makes that a possibility. Because if you look, one of the rules about script, studying Scripture is you allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Okay? If you want to write these down, 
There's five other places. There's more. I'm going to give you five. There's five other places that say you cannot lose your salvation. You ready? John 10, 27 through 29. This would have been on the screen had I know how to use that computer. Romans 8, 35 through 39. Philippians 1, 6. 1 Peter 4, or 1 Peter 1, 4 and 5. This passage is in complete agreement with those that say, look, you can't lose this. That's not what this writer is saying. Here's why. Verse 6, in our translation, if you have the NIV, and if you were handed a Bible by one of us, it's NIV. Verse 6 starts this way. And, but that's not in the text. The actual word is the Greek word chi, and it says if. And it's a big if. Okay? It's one of those hypothetical ifs, like if you jumped in Green Lake and were bit by a shark. Do you see how that's a problem? Are there sharks in Green Lake? No. Convince my wife otherwise, please. Okay? There are no sharks there. If you do this, if I can fly with my arms, it's a big hypothetical if. It's a, it's a, uh, it's what's it called? Reducto ad absurdum, which is Latin for it's absurd what they're doing here. I don't know what reducto says. I'll work on that. But it's a premise showing that this is logically, uh, uh, and it's logic that leads to absurdity, meaning if this were possible, if this were possible for someone to walk away, this is what's going on. Once you've experienced Jesus, the writer's saying, been filled with the Holy Spirit, why on earth would you ever go the opposite way? That's absurd. If you've had a true experience with Jesus in your life, why would you run the other way? Instead of walking away, walking this way, the author's saying you should be walking that way. That there's a life change that comes from a true encounter with Christ and then your progression begins. It's absurd to go backwards. It's dim-witted to go backwards. It's dim-witted. It's idiocy to be stagnant. The only thing that makes sense is you have to move forward. You have to mature. You have to produce fruit. We spent all summer talking about fruit. You have to keep moving. You have to grow. Are we clear? Hebrews 6 isn't that scary, right? It's this whole thing. You have to keep moving. You have to keep growing. There's a, a, a TV show called Band of Brothers, and I was going to show the clip, but there's far too many loose limbs and bullets and curse words. I was like, I can't do that. Maybe a guy's night we might do it, but there's this whole scene, right? They're taking a town, and there's a, a little squadron, and they, they go this way. Another company's coming this way, and they're going to meet in the middle and take on the Germans. If you haven't seen Band of Brothers buckle up for a weekend and do it. It's amazing. And this group of this squadron is being led by a new lieutenant, and he's scared. And he goes out, and he hides his whole battalion behind a hay bale, and he stops moving. What's the problem in battle if you stop moving? You are an easy target, okay? What do the Germans do there in this town? You can read about it in the Band of Brothers book by Major Winters, and he talks more about it, but they can fix their artillery on one spot. And if everybody is in one spot sitting still, what's going to happen? You're sitting ducks. And so the people on the back, the, the battalion chiefs are in the back going, move, 
move, get moving, you can't stay still. One guy tries to go out, but he's like the boss, and they pull him back, he can't. So he sends somebody else. And the lieutenant, Spears, runs, grabs all of these guys that are stuck behind this hay bale, and says, move, essentially, we're moving. And he looks at the lieutenant that got him there, says, you're relieved, go back home. And then he takes, he takes off and runs through the German lines, meets up with the other company, and then comes back. And the Germans are like, what is happening? This guy's moving. Why couldn't they shoot him? He was moving. The illustration is this. Most of our faith has been stuck behind a hay bale. We're stuck there. We're afraid to go forward. We don't know if we can go back. You can't go back, right? The Hebrews just said that. You can't go back, but we're stuck. And the problem with being stuck is you're an easy target for Satan to go, hey, what about, have you tried this? Have you tried walking away from that? Have, have, you know, maybe you shouldn't read your Bible all the time. You're not doing anything with it. Maybe, maybe you should stay away from church. Maybe you should, you know, the, the lies and the doubts start coming. Why? You're stagnant. So we have to grow. It's imperative that we grow. So how do we do it, right? I'm glad you asked. Flipping your Bibles back to Ezra. Ezra 7. Ezra is the second person in the Ezra-Nehemiah book. Remember, there's the first one is Zerubbabel, who was the church planter, rebuilt the altar. The second one is Ezra. He is the Bible nerd. And the third one we'll get to in a couple weeks. Nehemiah is the construction manager, right? Ezra starts coming back to Jerusalem from uh, about 80 years after Zerubbabel finished the, the altar. So they've been there for a while. Ezra was still in Babylon. He got permission to leave. And so in Ezra 7, he starts coming back. There's a couple observations to make in Ezra chapter 7. Let me get there in my Bible. After these things, it says in, in, in verse 1, during the reign of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sirah, son of Azra, Hilkah, the son of Sh So he's going through all of these names, and I'm not even going to attempt it. What they're doing is showing Ezra comes from a, li from a line of very important priests. Zadok is named. Zadok was a priest that refused to cave to Absalom when Absalom took over from David. And Zadok was blessed because of it. And said, Zadok, your, God said that Zadok's name would always be in the lineage of priests. You can keep going in Ezra 7 and you'll see it goes all the way back to a man named Aaron. Aaron was Moses' brother the very first priest. So this is the pedigree you're dealing with. This is Ezra, okay? Then you keep going on down. Some of the Israelites and the priests, the Levites, the musicians, it goes on. Ezra arrived in, oh, we missed it. Verse four, that Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher, well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel had given. The king had granted everything to him that he asked. The hand of the Lord was on him. Some of the Israelites, including the priests, the musicians, the gatekeepers, the temple servants, all came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem on the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He began his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month. He arrived there. Now, this is what I wanted to get to, verse 10. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and to the observance of the law of the Lord and his teaching the decrees to all of Israel. We see that? That's an extremely high compliment to have. Now, it's kind of weird that Ezra's probably writing this book. 
And he says, look how good I am. But this was his reputation. He was known for studying the scriptures. Ezra studied God's word. He was in it. But he took it one more. He observed them, meaning he put it into practice. It wasn't just something he would read on a Sunday and go, yeah, cool, I'm going to put it in my backpack and we'll get to it next Sunday. No, it was how do I live this way? Ezra is a perfect example for us. If you want to grow in your faith and your relationship with Jesus, the scriptures need to be more than just read them one day a week just for a good story. Not in a legalistic way, but we need to be able to read the scriptures and then do what they say. How do they have us live? How does your quiet time in the mornings dictate the rest of your day? I hear over and over this line, I really wish I knew what God has to say to me about this. Well, there's this weird thing. There's a book. God wrote it. And you can read everything that God has to say about most everything. This is it. You want to know how to grow in your faith? Step one, get in your scripture. It is your scripture that tells you how God thinks. It is your scripture that bases your worldview on the, your biblical worldview of the world around us. World is a lot in that sentence. But it comes from your scripture. The more you find yourself like Ezra, studying the scriptures, not just to study them, but to put them in practice, what you have learned, the more you'll be shaped by the very words of God. Because here's another sobering reality. The majority of us in this room and online and whoever's watching this later are more shaped by the 24-hour news cycle, politicians, celebrity gossip, social trends, Instagram, protests, and whatever else is going on than we are shaped by the Word of God. Amen. We have lost this in our world and in our church. We'd soon follow an NPR headline than we would a chapter headline, and it's dangerous. To be discipled by Jesus means to become more and more like Jesus, means to become following him so closely that you're covered, as one person said, in the dust of his feet, which means you're in his word, you're reading him, you're studying him, you're putting it into practice. And when you follow other things more than you do your scriptures, more than you do Jesus, it's no wonder that we're being discipled in a completely different direction. You want to grow in faith? Turn the news off for a minute. Turn the radio off for a minute. Get in your scriptures. Now, there's practices that you can get in, and Jen has a whole bunch of those, Lectio, whatever. First step before we even get to those, open your Bibles. Verse a day, whatever. Chapter a day, fine. Book a day, fine. Whatever. Get in there. It's awkward at first. I remember I had this prayer once, and I said, Jesus, I want to know you more, and I want to grow further in my relationship with you. Don't pray that unless you mean it, because all of a sudden I was waking up naturally at 4.45 in the morning. It took me about a week and a half to figure out why. Oh, I brought this on myself. Okay. Those times are the best times I have because from about 4.45 to 6.30, I'm alone. It's quiet. And we can read. Sometimes it's a book. Sometimes it's a chapter. Sometimes I only get through a verse. But there's reading. There's prayer. There's listening. Sometimes I fall back asleep but it's putting yourself in a position to hear God's voice and be shaped by it. Jesus hinted at this in Matthew 7, 24 and 25. This comes from the message. These words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life. 
They're not homeowner improvements to, uh, to your standard of living. They are foundational words, words to build on. If you work these words into your life, you are like a smart carpenter who has built his house on a solid rock. Rain poured down, river flooded, a tornado hit, but nothing moved. It was fixed to the rock. But if you just use my words in my Bible study, in your Bible studies, and don't work them into your life, you are like a stupid carpenter, we could say dimwit, who has built his house on the sandy beach. When a storm rolls in and the waves came, it collapsed like a house of cards. So even Jesus is getting at this. You want to have a life that makes sense? You want to grow closer to him? Get in the scripture. Read the scripture. Now there's another thing that Ezra does. He returns to Jerusalem. He brags about himself for a little bit here. He comes back and verse 9, or chapter 9, he's confronted with some sins that are happening in the community. The people of Israel had just gotten back from exile, and now they're back to sinning. They're doing the same exact thing that led them into exile. And so Ezra sees this, and he goes, When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, I pulled the hair out from my head, can't do that, and my, and my beard, and sat down appalled. So he hears what's going on, he hears the sin that's happening, and it makes him sick. I can't believe this is happening. Then, at the evening sacrifice in verse 5, I have rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God. Do you see what he did here? Sometimes when you're reading the scripture, you're going to be confronted with some things you don't like about yourself, and you then have a choice. I can either ignore it, and my faith stays here, or... I can do something about it and repent and take a step towards growth. This is the temptation. I can read about something I don't like and I can explain it away very easily and say that's cultural, context doesn't fit this, I don't really have that kind of problem, it's not really my big deal. Oh, this is, this is Old Testament, it doesn't, I know all the excuses because I use them. Okay, but follow Ezra's thing. What, what happened? Faced with the sin, he wasn't even committing the sin. Faced with the sin, he instantly broke down before the Lord and said, I am sorry. I need to change. Our growth often isn't shown in the fact that you don't sin. It's a given that you and I are going to sin again. Paul sins in Romans chapter 7. It talks about his back and forth with sin. Instead, our growth is shown in how quickly we change our ways when our sin is pointed out. How quickly do you come back to it? Do you change it immediately or do you mourn over it or do you try and explain it? Ezra saw this and he repented immediately. David, confronted with sin of Bathsheba, what's he do? Repents immediately, asks for a clean heart. Growth involves repentance. Growth involves us getting into the scriptures. Caleb is, is uh, learning songs right now and when I put him down I, to bed, he likes to sing this song called This I Know, which is really Jesus Loves Me. He just knows the phrase, this I know. So he'll say, this I know, Daddy. And it's great because I love to sing it to him. And he's two, and so him singing this song is just about as far as he can go. Who loves you? Jesus loves me. Is that, that's the elementary things that I'm trying to, Carrie and I are trying to put into Caleb's life. Jesus loves me. And he'll sing it. When Caleb is 13 one day, 
I would love for him to progress beyond Jesus loves me. I would love him to go from this I know to I am because. See what I'm getting at? I am this because Jesus loves me. I've moved from I know Jesus loves me to now my life is a response because Jesus loves me. Growth needs to happen in all of our lives. We're never going to finish until one day we're dead. Paul talks about it. We are constantly growing in him until our eyeballs see Jesus' eyeballs. The work is still continuing. I pray that we are a community that grows deeper and deeper into the love and person of Christ. When you dive into your scriptures this week in your quiet time, ask Jesus to move you. Ask God to speak with you. And if there's sin, don't run away from it. Confess it. Move the other way. Take the step. Jesus, we thank you that you love us. You love us enough not to leave us stagnant and in one place. You want to see us move forward. You want to see us take new ground. But Father, it takes courage because it's kind of scary to move forward in faith. It means leaving some things behind. It means changing. It means hard conversations with somebody or ourselves. And so, Lord, I ask that you give each one of us courage this week to move beyond the elementary and into the more advanced. Thank you for the security that you're not going to leave us. Nothing can pluck us out of your hands. You did our saving, therefore you hold on to us. We are secure. We thank you for that. And help us to build on the foundation that is you.